Yeah, I think one way a lot of people can get attention quickly is by saying or doing something shocking. And it can be shocking to say something like, oh, the parents must have been involved or the sister must have been involved. And there's just, they don't consider, as Anya very eloquently said, how that affects people, the people involved. And this is not a game. This is a real life with real people. And that's easy to forget. I know uh, just, I think last weekend, Anya and I went to the uh, Ernie Pyle Museum here in Indiana. And there's a point to this story. (laughs) (laughs) Ernie Pyle is a World War II correspondent. And back in 1945, he wrote, or maybe it was 1944, he wrote an incredible column about a soldier who died in combat named Captain Waskow. And anybody who reads this, I challenge them to get through it and not have to wipe away a tear. And I remember reading this as a, uh, as a young man and thinking this is like really great writing. And I was earlier at the Ernie Pyle Museum for the 50th anniversary of the end of the war. And someone who had served with Captain Waskow was there and stood up and, and spoke. And he was just devastated talking about the loss of his friend. And that really underscored to me how the people we read about are real and people care about them. It's not just fancy writing. It's not just people being emotional on YouTube or whatever. These are real people. That's Kevin Greenlee, an attorney and one of the co-hosts of the Murder Sheet podcast. I think I've been thinking about this, and and this conversation has prompted so many thoughts for me on this topic. So I just want to say, I so appreciate your wonderful questions and just the empathy that you bring to this work, Jason. But something we were talking about I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the nature of of tragedy, of just an awful tragedy happening, especially when, as in the case of a homicide, someone is responsible. There's there's someone who did this. It's not a it's not a natural disaster. And I think people feeling I think, you know, want, having the tragedy affect them and prompting either sorrow or anger that's that's normal we're we're humans that's that's how we feel over things like this but i think if we can collectively try to channel that into something more helpful like curiosity wanting to learn more but not necessarily crossing boundaries or smearing people unnecessarily because i really do think there's something to the fact that this went unsolved for so long people have been looking for scapegoats and they found many different scapegoats and even now that someone has been arrested and charged with a crime, there's continuing to be this effort to to scapegoat. And I think that is deeply unhelpful and says more about the people doing it than any reality to the situation. And I think people just need to try to, you know, come to terms with the reality versus necessarily what sounds good on the internet. That's Anya Kane, a journalist and the other host of the podcast. I'm Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook Podcast. Anya and Kevin host the weekly true crime podcast, The Murder Sheet. Their podcast truly started before they met. On November 17, 1978, in Speedway, 
an all-American town in the middle of Indiana, named after a racetrack at its center. It started at 11 p.m. when the local Burger Chef restaurant closed. Within an hour, the restaurant's four young employees were taken, forced out of the restaurant, and driven 20 miles south, where they were killed and left in the cold autumn air. They were beaten, stabbed, and shot. 38 years later, with the murders of 16-year-old Daniel Davis, 16-year-old Mark Feldman, 18-year-old Ruth Ellen Shelton, and 20-year-old Jane Freet still unsolved, Kevin began investigating the Burger Chef murders. Three years later, Anya and Kevin met when she, in her words, quote, became obsessed with the murders while covering it for what was then known as Business Insider. In 1978, the case made news from Idaho to Maine, but by 2019, other than the investigators, the loved ones, the local community, and figures suspected of involvement, the case had faded into the background. Anya and Kevin's research and reporting for the podcast, which launched in October 2020, helped enhance public awareness about the events of that night, early missteps in the investigation, advances that the agencies have made over the years, and even a scandalous situation involving the Indiana State Police and a different true crime podcaster who was given access to the case files while others were denied. That podcaster was given access in order to build a documentary, and Kevin and Anya fought back and shared the inside details to help bring about change. Their investigations of the case have taken them from Minnesota to Chicago and into the world of gangs and other places and people in their search for answers. To this day, Kevin and Anya are still digging into the case and have also expanded their reach to explore other unsolved crimes, including most prominently the 2017 murders of 13-year-old Abby Williams and 14-year-old Liberty Germain, the case, which has grabbed national attention in an age of cable news and YouTube channels, true crime sleuthing, and a social media explosion, has been one that has been striking. It began on a day off from school when Libby and Abby took an innocent walk that many teenagers do, walking on the trails of their hometown in Delphi, Indiana. Delphi is a tiny town of almost 3,000, probably most known before the murders for being the home to rail lines and the Wabash and Erie Canal that provided traders with access from the Great Lakes to the Gulf of Mexico in the 1800s. On their walk, Abby and Libby took pictures of the Munan High Bridge over Deer Creek. At 63 feet tall, the bridge is believed to be the second tallest bridge in Indiana. It's 1,300 feet long. Abandoned by the CSX rail line in 1987, the bridge became a network of trails and was little known outside of locals. In an iconic picture that was posted on Snapchat, Libby took a picture of Abby, who seems to be hopping on the 14-inch wide wooden trestles. The girls were never seen alive again. The next day, they were found murdered on the creek's banks. 
In a true crime world filled with activists, sensationalists, and people who are simply just not prepared to dig deep, Kevin and Anya stand out. They've taken a journalistic approach to breaking news on the case that's earned the respect of listeners, attorneys on the case, and prosecutors. At the same time, they've had to suffer through infighting, their balanced news approach from reporting without fear and favor has drawn fire, but they've remained focused on truth in a world where the television stations and newspapers that used to do that are few and far between. Their podcast is consistently among the top true crime podcasts in America and has landed on the charts in 29 other countries from Sweden to Kenya, from Ecuador to China and Ireland to the United Arab Emirates. Today, we're going to talk to Kevin and Anya about their journeys and their backgrounds, about what motivates them, about what brought them together as a team in life and in covering cases, and about some of the challenges that are being faced right now by the news media as Kevin and Anya work to push against the headwinds of the social media environment and sensationalism of the day. We're also going to talk about the importance of truth, pursuing it, and finding the best version of it you can. And we're going to talk about justice. Hey, Anya and Kevin, I just wanted to thank you guys for joining you know, I think you guys know this, but not necessarily all of my listeners know that um, your podcast was one that I came across during the pandemic. I was just, you know, during the pandemic, I became sort of like many people anxious and I took up walking nonstop. And uh, one of my friends suggested podcasts in general to me. I started listening and I'll never forget one day on a walk in this like rural road, I thought to myself, whatever happened to those two little girls who um, recorded the man that abducted them on that bridge in Delphi, Indiana. And so I started searching for um, podcasts and I tripped across your podcast. And I probably long before I ever knew you or met, met you, I had spent <laughs> dozens and dozens of hours with you. And, you know, while it's a tough story, I found it very comforting for a number of different reasons. And I think one of them was that you guys were fact-based, that you cared about the victims, you cared about all the other players that were there. And you probably don't know, in a moment like COVID, it's just so comforting to see the kind of compassion and fact-based reporting you know, from people. So it meant a lot to me. And I'm great that we've been able to develop a real world relationship. So, well, Jason, thank you so, so much. That, that really means a lot. And we just want to say, you know, we're so delighted to have gotten to know you through this as well. And we love doing the episode with you on our program and we're super excited to uh, talk to you today. Oh, very cool. And Kevin, it goes for you too. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Yes, everybody always complains I let Anya do most of my talking for me. <laughs> no, I'm a ventriloquist dummy. <laughs> right, right. He's secretly in the, the background. I um, You know, one of the things that I, I was kind of speaking of sort of like podcasting in general, one of the things that I love about podcasting is it allows people from, you know, 
all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, you know, extroverts, introverts, <laughs> um, people who, you know, all a variety of people without the backing of a publisher or a large organization to have at least the potential to have a positive impact on the world. Not that every podcast does, but, you know, one of the things that we talked about on the episode that we were on is that with that comes a certain responsibility, you know, to be clear about what you're doing, to be truthful, to be ethical about what you're doing and not being, you know, sensationalistic. And I'm wondering how you guys were able to create this in this medium and what your sort of philosophy is when it comes to covering the news or podcasting. That's a great question. I, I think in the beginning, Kevin and I actually had conversations about what kind of podcast we wanted to be. When we got started in 2020, podcasting was already very much a thing. True crime podcasting was very much established. So we were not exactly getting in on the ground floor. Um, and we that made us think, what can we add to this space? Like, What would be a value add for listeners and something that maybe they're not getting everywhere. Maybe they could get just from us or, or at the very least something that they could kind of come back to us for. And I think we settled on something that looked a little bit more journalistic. I think at first we were talking about maybe we do something that's more chat based and low key. And, you know, those can be great because as you've talked about, as we've talked about, those can form a community for people and make them kind of look at, you know, scary topics, but it's cathartic. But well, the catch is if you want to do that kind of show, you need to have a really charismatic personality. <laughs> <laughs> we recorded a, a test episode where we tried to be chatty and charismatic and we can never let anyone hear that. I think if that ever gets out, we're done. We're done. You know? Hey guys, you can share it with me privately. Oh my God. <laughs> if that, that hits uh, X or Facebook, Jason. I don't know what we're going to do because it, it, it was so cringe as the kids say. And it was just really, and so we realized, you know, listen, we're both nerdy people. We love researching things obsessively back before we were doing this. You know, if we watched a Disappeared episode, Disappeared was our favorite true crime TV show. And, you know, we might... Which one was Disappeared? That was um, Investigation Discovery. It would always cover... It really had a great point of view as far as service journalism. It would cover unsolved missing persons cases and really kind of humanize the people who went missing. It's, I mean, like all true crime products, it's not perfect, but I genuinely felt it was one of the best because it just had that human factor. But, you know, so we, we would, we would like research those, like we'd like watch the show and be like, oh, I wonder what happened with this guy. Or like, I mean, what's this guy's connection to it? And we'd be like researching it on newspapers.com. So I think we just realized we wanted to do that kind of show. And when it came to talking about, you know, serious topics like murder, we really just wanted to kind of, um, as much as possible, make it a, a respectful and sensitive listen and I think one turning point for us early on is if we do send you this awful chat-based episode. One of the, We talked about a particular case where a man was charged with felony murder because he and a, his partner robbed a bank, and, or rather it was a restaurant. It was a restaurant slash brothel, actually, Kevin. Way to whitewash it. So they, they robbed this restaurant, and the police kill his partner. And so he's charged with felony murder, and ultimately it's dismissed 
because the police were doing their job. They were acting lawfully, so he can't be charged with a criminal act based on that. So I thought it was an interesting case, and I thought, well, let's see if this guy's still around. The case took place in the 50s, and he'd passed away, but we found out that his son was still alive. And Mm. I sent him like a little note, and he actually wrote back, and it turned out that this man whose father had had this charge lodged against him, he did not know his father had been charged with felony murder until he was like 17 or 18. And he was going through some old scrapbooks and he had oh, wow. these newspaper articles. Yeah. And then also subsequently, this man, the son, became himself a police detective. And having these interactions with him, we realized this is a really good story. This is where our podcast should be when possible. And and the story was so about so much more than this like awful legal conundrum of like what is felony murder, when is it appropriate to charge? Because this man, his name was James Redline. He went on to become uh, a volunteer firefighter. He was a devoted father and husband. Um, after this, after he participated in what was a you know a violent and scary robbery and hostage taking, which is obviously a, a horrible thing to do. He had really um, kind of turned his life around and, and had a great relationship with his son. He was he was just a, a beloved person in his community. And it kind of... So there's something that says about yeah. redemption. And yeah. it makes you think along those lines. And if he'd actually been convicted of the felony murder, and if that, had, that conviction had stood, he never would have been released from prison. And he never would have had his son. And I mean, I actually, I always like, th- th- talking to the son, I mean... I think at one point, like I teared up in the interview because he was talking, I mean, like his dad would just sit around and like play like, what was it? That uh, Lou Rawls is, um, you'll never find another love like mine. So like, I remember stuff like that. Yeah. I love that song. And and so now anytime I hear it, I think about them and it just, it just was like, we can do more with true crime than just, um, you know, maybe we can push past some of the easy stories and really try to get in depth whether that means doing a lot of interviews with experts or finding the human story behind these crimes or, or something like that. It just really, um, it was a great case to start on because it just made us realize like this guy is not just a figure in a, in a, you know, or like a name on a court filing. He is a person and people are so complicated. Yeah. Well, I think you just actually crystallized for me sort of what one of your, one of your one of the differences in your podcast and some of the other uh, true crime ones I listen to because I was having a conversation with a podcaster who's you know he's working on one particular case and one of the things that he said to me was like what do you think I could add and I was like more about the victims mm-hmm. more about the people who are involved more about their humanity as opposed to just the case. And that's like, even going back to your like original Burger Chef episodes and thinking about thinking about your Delphi coverage, you really bring alive a lot of the characters, not just the, you know, not just the, the victims themselves or the defendant, but like, you know, the Indiana police superintendent, the defense lawyers, the profile of the judge, like, you, and in the Burger Chef case certainly the victims but also the other players you really bring them to life i guess if that makes sense is that part of the goal that you're aiming for am i first of all yeah thank you so much um yeah i think that is i think that is part of a goal and we we want to we want to approach these things you know 
at the end of the day, we care about this because it's about people. It's about humanity. And, um, under, you know, sometimes when you're doing, when you, you know, when you have a uh, medium that's constrained by time or space, such as TV or print journalism, it, it can be difficult to inject some of that into it. And some people do a great job of doing it anyway. But I, we feel like because we have the privilege of time and space in a podcast, it's income, you know, it, it really, we need to be using that privilege in, in the right way to capture these people and their humanity just to kind of remind people that like it is more than just a story. It's it's not a fictional story where no one's getting hurt. It's um it's something that's going to have an impact on everyone who touches some of these cases. Yeah, and that's one of the things I think about the media as somebody who's a former journalist and then even doing this work. We tend to or I don't know I don't know if it's about the media per se, but the further you are from a story, you know, you're listening to it through a podcast or watching it on TV, the more flat all the characters are. And we have this natural human desire, going back to that point you were making about the police officer, to create bad guys and good guys, people that we need to worry about and people who are safe with us. And that simplification sort of gives us a sense of control, but it also takes away humanity and in some ways makes us less safe because we don't truly we're not seeing the nuance of people that good people can do bad things and you know that people who have done bad things can bring all sorts of joy and good into the world and yeah i i I think that's that's like a brilliant brilliant way of it seems like a brilliant way to look at it kevin are you are are you in the same uh club on this as anya and i yeah absolutely matter of fact i was having uh, a similar conversation with anya about this just the other day where I was talking with her about when you first look at a case like Delphi from the outside and you just see how people, how public figures and stuff are portrayed in the media. It's very easy to think, oh, this guy doesn't know what he's doing or this person is bad. But as we've gotten into the case more and more, I feel that our opinions of these people on both sides of the aisle, be they prosecution or defense, our opinions of them has been raised as we get to know them better and and know them as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're not just looking at them for the role that they're playing in this, this narrative for us. I, I always thought as I've learned more and more about Delphi, like someone could certainly write a book about the case, but you could almost write about Delphi as an American town with all of its quirks and interests. And it would be, it would be just a fascinating kind of, um, microcosm for things. So, you know, if this sort of is part of what drove you guys, I'm just curious how you both became interested because I'm beginning to kind of see it in the Burger Chef case itself. Like you had very different careers, Kevin, you were a lawyer on you were a journalist. I'm just curious about how you became interested, how you met, how you began working together. Absolutely. I guess chronologically, I yeah, go first in go terms first. of interest in Burger Chef. So the Burger Chef murders happened in November of 1978. The victims were actually abducted on November 17th, 1978. And some people may be aware that that date has another piece of significance because that was the date that the Star Wars holiday special aired. And so oh, wow. I'm like six years old. I watched this holiday special and I hated it. I was very, very, very 
upset about it. It's really bad. <laughs> what what bothered you? Uh, like the, the the first fifteen minutes is just Wookiees grunting. Visit it as an adult. There's this bizarre scene where Chewbacca's father is doing some sort of having an interaction with a woman that verges on pornographic. It's certainly inappropriate for children. Oh wow! It's a very bad special. There's Princess Leia sings. It wasn't what I was expecting as a child. So. If if you know me at all, sometimes when I get upset, I complain a lot, especially when I was younger, six, and had no filters. And so at some point that weekend, my mother said, you, you know, Kevin, sure, the Star Wars special was awful, but there's other more serious things going on. And mm. told me this article about the Burgershev murders. And so it always stuck in my head. And so when I saw, as an adult, some uh, video news coverage of an anniversary of the crime, and saw that it had not been solved, uh, I got interested in it again. And I ultimately mm. met the sister of one of the victims. How did you well, get interested in it? Anya? I became, well, uh, so to go back even, so I was a very morbid child early on. Um, I remember reading like New York Post articles and like asking my granddad, who's this little little old Irish guy who's like very, you know, just a very sweet man. Like, Hey, what, what is like sexual assault? And he'd be like, Oh no, no, no. Like, you know, you, I can't, I can't talk. To <laughs> you should not be asking me this. I'll question. tell you in 15 years, <laughs> you, you, like in 15 years. And so, um, I remember that. Or better yet, someone, I'll have someone else tell you in 15 he was, years. He was just trying to piece out of that conversation. And, uh, and you know, but you know, they always had those tabloids lying around. I really like to read. So I'd be reading. Did you grow up in New I grew up in New York. I grew up in the okay. New York City suburbs. So we had New okay. York Post, New York Daily News. And I'd be, I was always drawn to the crime stories. Uh, even before that, I remember my parents had like a, um, were, you know, were Catholic. And so they had like a saint book, like a book of the saints. And I remember just like flipping through it all. <laughs> like I'd be like, oh, doctor of the church. Eh, whatever. And I'd be always reading about the martyrs. I would just not <laughs> Saint Valentine. Yeah, right. Saint Valentine. Oh, Saint Sebastian. Uh, Bartholomew's holding up his skin. Like, what is this? I was a very morbid kid. And I was also very anxious. Like, I was always, I mean, I remember like, like catching a little bit of a glimpse of like a doc on like the Zodiac Killer or like the Manson murders and being really freaked out about it. So reading about it more, I think, helped me control that anxiety around bad things happening or, or maybe it just worsened it who knows <laughs> yeah no i mean i get it i i may it may not come from the anxiety but there's a part of me that feels better and safer when i understand what happened yeah you know yeah there's like a comfort in having an idea of that now it leads me down crazy roads like the <laughs> first time i found out about um josh hallmark's uh podcast on Israel Keys. I literally listened to like 45 episodes in a row. That was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I did not feel safer. But usually So you grew up in New York with sort of like a fascination of those kinds of crime stories and, and sort of like that morbid world. And it kind of like in a weird way, it sounds like it calmed your anxiety as opposed to provoking it like it yeah. does for a lot of people. I think it provoked it at first and then it almost like short circuited it when it came yeah. to crime. So it became like now I'm just very jaded and <laughs> around that, subject, you know, and, and so 
I think you keep saying that, but I don't believe you, Anya. You're a skeptic. You're a skeptic on my jadedness. I guess totally. I'm like, I'm like, seriously. When I in my psychological test, you know, I am in the two percentile. I am that low in skepticism, but I do not believe you. <laughs> that that's yeah. That that is actually yeah, that, got you got my number then. And then, um, so I I went into journalism. I worked for a digital publication after college called Business Insider, and I can call it that because they since rebranded. You know, huzzah. They were insider and then insider business, and now they're back home. But um, I I, I got a job as a, you know, I was doing retail reporting, which I really enjoyed. It was just a great, you know, a great beat. But what I really was interested in was crime. And so I would sometimes pitch little, you know, like ideas about crime. I you, know, you really turned the retail beat into the crime beat. I, know, <laughs> I, I really did my best. And, and I had some wonderful editors who were really patient with me. And I think they felt like, okay, as long as she's doing her retail reporting and is doing a good job with that, we can throw her a bone once in a while. And I think that's where Burger Chef came out of. I had a wonderful editor, um, Sid Mahanta, who kind of believed in the piece and was like, you know, he was doing like lots of features there at the time. They were breaking into that. And so he, for some reason, approved me to go to Indiana for two well, weeks. Oh, oh, yeah. But here's how we met. This is the weird. So there's, there's this wonderful website out there called newspapers.com. And if, in case people, oh yeah, <laughs> it, it's basically an online archive that has hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of newspaper pages from throughout history. And for us, a dating website. And so, if you want to look up a contemporary coverage <laughs> of like some, you guys clearly have an excellent way of repurposing things. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> You can look up Civil War coverage, how how does the press cover the Gettysburg Address, things like that. Or I was looking up a bunch of articles about Burger Chef. And so by this point, I've gotten kind of obsessed with the topic. And I become friends with one of the retired detectives who worked on the case originally. And one time when I'm having breakfast with him, he said, you know, Kevin, it might be interesting for you to go to newspapers.com and look at the articles you've clipped about Burger Chef and see if you can tell who else has been clipping Burger Chef articles. His idea was... I didn't even know that feature was built in. How neat. It's kind of his idea. You save an article and then you can see who else has saved the same article. Oh, wow. And his idea was maybe someone involved with a crime is on newspapers.com looking stuff up. And so that's a great idea. And I go to newspapers.com and I look and I see that a reporter in New York City is clipping a suspiciously high number. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, something's going on. (laughs) So I I reached out to her and said, what's going on? And that was Anya. Yeah. And I got this email. And at that point I was, I was, you know, kind of unfortunately getting, you know, into more of a alcoholism state so you know I, I was i was kind of achieving pretty highly at work for the most part or i don't know maybe my editors don't think so but I, I you know i was doing okay on the surface but my initial reaction when i saw his email was oh my god did i get drunk last night and like foia something and like <laughs> <laughs> why is this lawyer contacting why me based on my yeah <laughs> i was like i was like did i set like i was like looking at my sent like did i just send some crazy email and we we talked on the phone um, and had a nice conversation. And so I, I ended up 
flying out to Indiana for two weeks. I did the piece. uh, It got published. And then afterwards, we kept talking and, you know, kept on, kept very much in contact. And I think eventually realized, okay, like, oh, we're really good friends. And then kind of like, hmm. There's more here. Yeah, we're we're (laughs) both pretty interested in one another and uh, kind of went, went from there and pandemic hit. And uh, so a lot of this kind of all happened pretty quickly, but it was, uh, it was a really, it was a fun adventure, but I just, that's, that's Kevin and I are so similar. We have very different backgrounds. Um, We, we, you know, come from different places, but on a fundamental weird level, we're very similar people. And so we just, I think both felt, you know, like a, a huge connection there. Yeah. Like you're probably not the first uh, marriage built on true crime, but that's certainly one of the more interesting stories. You mentioned you, you, you drove right by it, but I, you know, as somebody myself recovering alcoholic and recovering drug addict and, you know, the height of my drug addiction, I don't know if you know this part, but the height of it was during the point that I was reporting. And one of the things that you just made me think about was like, is there a bit of a connection. Like I have always cared deeply about people. This is going to sound so corny, but I became a journalist all because of, I think really, well, hold on, let me take it back. I'm curious. I've always been naturally curious. Mm -hmm. I grew up in, you know, leafy for high school, leafy suburbs of um, Northern Virginia outside of DC where bad things didn't happen to people. And one winter break, a, um, a kid who, when I had, I had moved here from Georgia, I had moved to Virginia from Georgia when I was in, uh, right before my ninth grade year. But there was this guy who was one of a few guys at the school who was really nice to me when I was there. And then between my freshman year and my sophomore year, or not between them, on the winter break of my sophomore year, um, I read this article in the Washington Post before we got to school, and he had been killed out in a wooded rural area. He had been taken out with his cousin and shot in the back of the head. And it was heartbreaking for me, for a lot of other people at the school, but this reporter came. And this reporter, Debbie Wilgore, and I think she's still at the, the Washington Post, and she was a young reporter at the time, and she covered the story. And she came across me. I can't remember how she came across me, but I ended up helping her figure out, you know, these are the people you should talk to. This is what's going on. And when her stories came out, I realized, like, this has the power to heal people. It has the power to help people. And I want to do something like that with my life. The flip side of that is I think I'm so empathetic and I so want to help people and get to the bottom of things. And that also makes me particularly vulnerable. And when I was younger, I think it probably made me vulnerable as a journalist because a typical journalist thing is like drown your emotions in alcohol. Yeah. So I think it probably played some, not all role, right? My bipolar diagnosis played a role in it too and other stuff, but it probably did play some role in, um, in, in my addictions. Yeah, I I think I, I I empathize because I think I was having probably a somewhat of similar thing with anxiety. Um, I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. I've always been a pretty anxious person. Um, sometimes people are surprised by that because it's like I I don't I think they just expect pe- someone who's anxious to just be constantly like ah you know <laughs> but yeah um you know it's it's a lot of uh 
compartmentalization and, you know, frankly, hiding it. Uh, I, I have, I, I've had social anxiety. I know, I, I think almost for me, like journalism was kind of fighting through some of those natural impulses. Um, and I think, I think alcohol became like a good medication in my mind at the sure. time. Um, and then I, you know, in, it, like, I come from, I'm, I'm, my family's Irish. Uh, I know that there's been alcoholism kind of in, in some of the, in some of the ancestry mm-hmm. in, on both sides. And I think I just kind of just started relying on it to kind of get through stuff. I, I was kind of a weird, like, I, don't, I mean, this is actually pretty common, I think, but like at the time I, I think I was kind of naive about like, well, alcoholism means like showing up for things drunk and being a mess. But like, I was not recognizing that like also alcoholism is going home at the end of the day and drinking alone in your room and Mm -hmm. hiding it from people. Um, It's the negative impact on your life with an inability to stop. Doesn't matter how it looks. Exactly. And so I, but I was kind of coming from this like, well, you know, I'm doing well at work and I'm not, you know, i like I'm only doing it when I'm alone and I can't bother anyone. And like, I, I can relate to yeah. everything you're saying. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, it, people don't realize it's like, and it's like, it became to the point where I, I really was just like, I think I, I think I got out in time to just be able to stop. Um, And, and it was, re- I mean, it's, it was so wild because there were times where I was just kind of trying to negotiate like, well, I can't stop drinking. But maybe I'll just have, you know, I'll, I was like setting up all these rules for myself. And then at a certain point, it, that became, you know, hiding it, doing all that just became so incredibly full-time job. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I mean, it's like sometimes I just think and I'm just so grateful that I'm not in that space anymore because it was absolutely hellish um, mm. doing that high wire act. And and now it's just like, I don't drink. I love maybe that. The- Maybe the reason I know you're an optimist is because it sounds like you and I are so alike. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I try, I I try the cynicism thing, but that's one of the like. It's a um. I I think you're making a really good point because, it, and I don't think it just applies to alcoholism or drug addiction. It can be a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. It can be anything. Like it's so easy for us to deceive ourselves about the things that are hard to let go of that are unhealthy. I'm just glad that you you found a path and you found a way. And it sounds like it started to happen right as you were uh, you were finding your way as you were like looking into this case and meeting Kevin in the podcast. Are there connections there? Is there? A- I think there was definitely like a reckoning of kind of like okay, I'm I'm looking at the thing like. I think for a long time, I, I, I was just, as you said, like you become good at self-deception. So I was just like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. Things are fine. And there was like a, a me that was just telling me that I was fine constantly. And I kind of seeing Kevin, seeing the work we were doing on Burger Chef, doing all that, be kind of became like, oh, well, maybe that's actually what I want. Maybe instead of just kind of being complacent and sort of drinking away my problems, I could actually put myself out there and go for what I want. Mm. Um, and so it, it definitely prompted a shift in how I was thinking about things. And it then helped it be- you sort of rethink the world a little bit. Right. And it was kind of like, I think just kind of a sign that like you could have something nice that will make you happy, but you can't have that and continue to drown yourself in alcohol every night. Um, yeah. It's not going to be 
It's not going to be possible to juggle both of those things. It's a um, it's a mistress that doesn't allow any other mistresses. Yeah, you can't have anything. Your focus is is that. I mean, I had like a timetable of like you know liquor stores where it's like I'm going to go to this one because I don't want anyone there to think I'm an alcoholic. So I'll like I'll stagger which ones I go to. I mean, like you, the way you think is just so insane, but it's it's just normal for you when you're in. <laughs> You'll love this. When I got sober, one of my friends who was a reporter at the Times, he said to me, like, I was so surprised at first that you went to rehab and I didn't I didn't get it. He's like, but then I started talking to people and I realized, like, you go out to drink with one person, like, I see you once a week drinking, but you go out with a different person every night at a different place. I was like, exactly. <laughs> All the strategy. <laughs> Like, I don't have a problem. Does anyone see a problem? Oh, you mean the one I'm hiding? <laughs> it's so true, though. And you become like, you're, you know, that meme of that woman who is like all the like the the like division sign and the like arithmetic like floating around her head. You become like that. But for supplying your addiction, like your brain gets hijacked. Yeah. And it's awesome because for you, like, I mean, we all hit some kind of bottom, but I'm glad you I, I think about, you know, like my. The, the recent thing, and we've talked about this with my mom dying, like mm-hmm. you can find gratitude in those moments of of loss. And I think one of the things that like people don't really realize about addiction is that it is a loss. It's a loss of our coping mechanisms. It's a loss of the way that we manage the world. And it's really scary if you don't have people around you who love and care about you and can sort of like either be a model or help you plot some kind of positive future. So it's almost like, I guess it's maybe a a blessing that you guys met at the moment you did as opposed to some other moment. I, I totally agree with that. And I'm just so glad that you also have been able to kind of go on that journey and, and just, you know, I'm, it's, when you're in it, it is so scary. Um, and, and you know, something's wrong, but you also don't know how to stop. And it's just, um, I'm very grateful to have had the support to kind of get where I am now. And Yeah. Well, and so we get to the Burger Chef. So you're reporting for Business Insider on Burger Chef. Kevin is reporting on you. <laughs> so how is it you guys actually, so Kevin reaches out to you and then you guys begin working together on the story, kind of like like a potential source and reporter trying to figure out what's going on? Yeah, or? he was very generous. He kind of just handed over like his... I've gotten obsessed with the case. Yeah. So I was like talking to anybody who had a connection with the case, including former investigators, family and friends of the murder victims, even some of the potential suspects in the case. It just mm-hmm. really got under my skin. Uh, and I didn't really have anything to do with that information. And so I reached out to Anya and said, oh, I'm, I'm an attorney. I've been researching this case. Are you interested in the case? Is that why you've been doing this? And she wrote back and indicated that she was, and that she had the uh, task of convincing her editor to let her write about it. And mm. she came out there, and I basically helped introduce her to people. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah, I had Kevin. I had listened to one of your old episodes recently, and one of the things that stuck out to me was it sounds like you knew everybody on the case. Yeah. <laughs> like you, you knew investigators who were connected to it. You knew lawyers that were connected to it. So you were in deep, and then able to to sort of help each other. How does it go from Burger Chef and the Burger Chef story to the podcast itself? So we we. Um we so I, we published or i mean i published the uh insider published the burger chef story then we you know we kind of just stayed in contact after that um realized that we were really deeply in love with one another and got together and uh we're we're living together in brooklyn well in terms of the podcast the thing the the, the thing about the burger chef case is that there are a lot of strange things about it for instance, it's a restaurant-related homicide, but the victims were taken out of the restaurant and were killed elsewhere. And Which is I, not the normal way a restaurant homicide is. Exactly. It's because the, the longer time the perpetrators are with the victims, the greater the chance they're going to be caught or someone's Loss going to see Loss of control. Something. So we, we right. got to wondering, are these things really rare or do we just imagine that they're rare? And so Anya started preparing a spreadsheet in which she started listing a bunch of restaurant-related homicides and what, whether or not some of these things that happened in Burger Chef happened in them, just as a research thing. And we found out basically, yeah, Burger Chef is rare. But some of these other cases that Anya came up with were interesting in and of themselves. Yeah. And Kevin, wa- Kevin pitched the podcast to me. I did not want to do it. I was. You're like, come on, man. Yeah. The reason I started out with this explanation of explaining that we got together is because, like, I wouldn't even. I was like, the only reason I'm even considering this is because we're we're a couple and together. Like, like I was just like so. I was so opposed. I can't. I can't overstate that, right, Kevin? You're very. Opposed. I was very. I was just like, ah, oh, geez, you know, like. You, but, you didn't start it to make your millions, oh, which I, I only say that because if people knew that 99% of people in podcasting make like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> not a great way to make money, believe it or not. No, no. <laughs> Much better things to do. Much better things. To, like literally like go to Vegas or something. Um, right. Like, but eventually I think he, he kind of won me over. I don't remember how you did. Do you remember? I'm very charming. He's very charming. He's very <laughs> He's got those lawyers. I do agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's very, you know, and so I, you know. It's every time, by the way, Kevin says, well, I'm like, oh, no, he's about to convince someone. <laughs> <laughs> it always starts with, well. <laughs> plug, your, plug your ears if he's going to do that. Um, and, yeah, so, like, we we ended up, uh, you know, but I think I, my contribution was I was like, I don't want to do, like, I think, especially after the debacle of us recording that terrible, you know, more jokey episode, I was like, we're not doing that. I'm not humiliating myself. At that point, I was working at a, you know, like an outlet, so I, I just didn't. I just was like, I don't want to, I don't want this to be embarrassing essentially. Um, and so we ended up putting a lot more work into it than I think either of us anticipated just because the nature of it was going to be more work intensive. One of the things that was really interesting about the um, Burger Chef work that you guys did, and that was really the first time, I think I'd heard of the case maybe, but one of the um, you know first times I had really gotten to it in depth, you know, a number of victims taken away, 
uh, a lot of clues, a fragmented investigation and all of those things. But one of the things that was really interesting for me, because I took all the Burger Chef episodes, I searched for Burger Chef and listened to them in a row, was I realized in listening to him that this has been a case that's covered intensely and by a lot of different different people, um, some of them very superficially, some with some element of depth. But one of the things that surprised me in listening to it was as you guys were you know, trying to dig into records, that the Indiana St- State Police was unwilling to share. You know, It's still either an open investigation or a cold one that's mildly warm. But they did ultimately end up sharing it with another podcaster mm-hmm. other than you guys, Ashley um, Flowers, who's the podcaster. She crime junkie. She's crime junkie, I, yep. Yeah, and it just struck me that you guys in your coverage of that were so willing to be honest about it, even though it might annoy the Indiana State Police and certainly annoy one of the biggest podcasters in in true crime. I just thought it took a lot of courage for you guys to explore some of those pieces that I think for a lot of us, we bite our tongues and... um, you know, and, and and that's not just the Ashley Flowers part, but also the sources part and the police. And I was just curious, why did you guys decide to be so open about what was happening in the background? Oh, we just wanted to kick off a blood feud, you know? <laughs> um, no, no. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much about that. Uh, a lot of people at the time, a lot of people who were friends with us said, don't do this. Yeah, they're like, don't do not. No one's going to talk to you again. And don't poke, don't poke the audio Chuck Bear. But Little do you know, that's why I talked to you. I, know, yeah, right? <laughs> I think we were we were so frustrated, um, and we really had made efforts behind the scenes to to try to kind of come to some like what we would felt would be like an equitable conclusion to that. Uh, and I, I think at the end of the day, Ani and I just really care very, very, very deeply about this case. And so if we were quiet about something going on in the background that we felt was inappropriate, I think that would be something that'd be difficult to live with. Yeah. We just were like, this is Mm -hmm. wrong. This is absolutely wrong what happened. And, you know, we're not trying to, we're not trying to just go out and attack people. We're trying to explain to the public why this is wrong. And in the hopes of maybe it gets rectified, which of course it never was, but um, The the final impetus for us to, make the choice to go and report that was it's it's a complicated story, but the Indiana state police sharing that material with Ashley flowers kind of blew up in their face and caused a lot of problems for them. And so because of that, they took the position, well, we're not going to cooperate with any production about a cult case. Mm. And there was someone we know who's very close with a family who lost a daughter in the late seventies. The mother of this daughter is, you know, getting older. She really wants justice, a national production, a national TV production wanted to do a story about it, but they said, we can only do it if we get some sort of statement from the Indiana state police and the Indiana state police said, no. Yeah. And And it was all all connected to the blow up over the we strongly suspected it was based on what we were hearing sort of behind the scenes and i know you guys may not feel as comfortable going here but one of the things that sort of struck me about that was it didn't seem like at least the 
Indiana State Police investigator who gave Ashley Flowers the information or Ashley Flowers herself were really, you know, they may have been interested in the case, but they seem to be really interested more in getting attention and getting a film. And I think that part of it, at the expense of the case or at the expense of awareness, to it, that's and you know, you guys know that this is one of the things on my hobby horse, right? Like that sensationalism mm-hmm. over truth and justice and doing what's right will drive me nuts. But I felt like, you know, that was some of the vibe I was getting from that. Yeah. Like I I don't want to read too much into people's hearts or anything, but I, I'm going to tell you, like the actions, analyzing them on the surface, you know, I can I can perhaps understand how mistakes are made and, you know, they kind of go too far um, on the side of the state police. I mean, in fairness to flowers, it's her job to try to get as much information. My big problem with how she handled it was she essentially gave over editorial control to the state police without really disclosing that, in my opinion, in an appropriate way to her audience. So they had an opportunity to like review it before she produced or published it. Basically part of the deal was the state police would give her access to everything. And in return, they got the opportunity to sign off on her. And it was exclusive access. Nobody else would get access. Well, so that's, it reminds me on speaking of New York and reporting days, there was this old trick we used to use because I'm old. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We didn't all have cell phones. And so we used uh, pay phones to call in stories. And this was a classic New York Post uh, trick. They would go to the payphone, they would call in their story, and and I have to admit it wasn't just the post that did it, but they were the main perpetrators. And then they would take the bottom of the payphone off, take the, re- uh, not the receiver, but the part that you speak into out, and then put the payphone back together. So when all the other reporters went to the payphone to call in their story, they no one could hear them on the other end. And it's almost like that. It's like okay, what's really important to you having the story first or the maximum number of people who might be able to help solve the story or might benefit from the story, getting the story. And that part has always, you know, it's it, it feels more tabloidy to me. It feels more selfish to me. And it doesn't really fit with sort of like what I associate with the true values of journalism. Yeah, I I tend to agree strongly with all that and it's like, I mean, I can I think I go back to I could see a situation where people make a mistake and get caught up in it, but I think that the reaction of both Audio Chuck and the state police over this situation, you know, was kind of to not deal with the you know what happened and um the lesson shouldn't be don't talk to reporters about cold cases, it should be figure out a way to do it in in a way that you're not essentially, you know, giving one person the monetary exclusive um, on, on case files. Like there's, there's a learning less, there's a lesson here, but it just, one thing that disturbed us was like, we just didn't really see anyone seeming to want to learn from it. And I just, I don't know. It's what happened with that other case that Kevin mentioned, you know, like the fact that they shut that down. I mean, that's not a high profile case that could really benefit it from, national news well i can tell you i can tell you guys in the true crime podcasting community at least the part the slice that i am i hear people constantly talking about how courageous it was for you to take on you mentioned audio chat that's ashley flowers company but 
for the principle of, for the point, for values, that it was a reminder to everybody about what's really important in that um, space. And I've heard more than one person say that, and I've heard people who don't know that I know you all or listen to you Aww. bring it up to me. Thanks. So, yeah, it counts. It counts for something. I am, you know, and so from Burger Chef, you guys, I know you covered Edmund Cody. He, wasn't he the guy who had like, uh, like five of his nine wives? Yeah, <laughs> and, died, right? and you know, you did the Jack in the Box uh, manager who was murdered, yeah. Donut Shop murders. And yeah, stuff. that was a wild one. Helen Priscilla. Yeah, that that story was. <laughs> yeah. Well, go on. You were saying, go ahead. Oh, no, no, that's, yeah, that, that was just a great conversation with that defense attorney. That was something out of like a Perry Mason situation. Yeah, I I tend to be very skeptical of people who claim they were wrongfully convicted because the system generally works. Obviously, there are some wrongful convictions out there, but oftentimes the people making those claims just have really good defense attorneys. But this jack-in-the-box story, I think that is a pretty clear example, at least in my mind, of a wrongful conviction. And no one really seems to care about it, I think in large part because the man who was convicted uh, was mentally ill. Could you walk through the case? So there was a um, a woman who worked at Jack in the Box. She was a manager named Helen Prestoza. This is in Hawaii. And just to give you a a nutshell, she, she goes missing one night and the people who are looked at for it are is the uh, the landlord of the place she was living and his son who had a, a criminal history and, and some mental illness issues and the you know they the investigators fall upon the son rather than the landlord even though mm. the victim and the landlord had a history of problems the um victim uh was lgbtq um she mm. was in a, a lesbian relationship and and that there seems to be some homophobia that was kind of possibly a factor in some of this. And in terms of like the effort or the killing itself, in terms of the conflict, I believe with the landlord. Um, Okay. Okay. And so, you know, the landlord's son is on trial and the landlord is, is a witness and is being, uh, you know, uh, questioned on the stand. And suddenly, you know, the, the defense's contention is that, you know, the person who had a reason to, harm this woman was actually the landlord because he was in this dispute with her mm. and on the stand the landlord starts breaking down and starts screaming and saying all these things in front of the jury and the judge gets the jury out of there and the prosecution goes to the defense with a, a much more lenient deal because i think they realized that everyone sitting in this room thinks that the landlord did it. Yes, yeah. and yeah. so uh, that's what ended up happening. That's a that's a totally surreal that's case. Like, like the deal. You know, when we oh, were, wow. were first looking into it, we're like, why did this guy only get like you know like like a you know not a murder charge? Like, what? Wh- why did the outcome happen this way? And then when we looked into it, we're like, oh, okay. Are there still people working for a different outcome in that case? Are there still? I'm not. I'm not sure. I don't believe there ever was. Yeah, I don't. I don't Mm. know. I think that was. I think the defense determined like that's as probably as good as we're going to get. I think there were some bad facts against the son, but they could also have been interpreted in a way that he participated in a cover up rather than is the killer. Uh, Wow. Yeah, it's a crazy case. 
how do we get from there to Delphi? Oh gosh. Um, Delphi came, Kevin's sister is very interested in the case and she was often letting us know, Hey, maybe you should consider covering that. Um, we had some- and Kevin, you grew up in Indiana. Are you guys far from there, or did you grow up near there? I grew up in uh, a town named Columbus, Indiana, which is about an hour south of Indianapolis, probably about two hours south of Delphi. Okay. And yeah, we're not too far away. We're like, what, what do you think? Like a an hour or so, an hour and 30 yeah. away from Delphi? And this, to be clear, uh, my sister that we're referring to is I was adopted. And so this is my biological birth sister. I wasn't I wasn't raised with, but uh, oh. she was very interested in this case, and so you guys really should cover it. And it was also there's some listeners too who were like, "Cover it, cover it, cover it." We love your Burger Chef stuff, but cover Delphi too. So we started looking into it. Yeah. So at that point, you guys are like the Indiana True Crime podcasters. I think that's a very <laughs> generous assessment. <laughs> this was right after we first moved back to Indiana. Yeah, we were living in Brooklyn okay. for a while. Brooklyn is where the podcast started. We um, moved to Indiana because, you know, I, I, that was sort of, I guess, a trend back in the pandemic. But also, you know, we just wanted – we love New York, but we just kind of wanted to be able to, you know, have a little bit more financial freedom um, in terms of cost of living. Indiana yeah. is definitely better with that. So we moved. Uh, Is there any place that's worse than New York? No, maybe San Francisco. <laughs> San Francisco, yeah. that's maybe the one, but it's it's bad. Um, but you know, definitely, definitely love New York City. But we, yeah, and, and there's just it's such a it's such a kind of a topic here in Indiana. Like people really care about this case, and and at that point, there had been so little, and like there was so much information, but so little good information and it, it, we kind of saw an opportunity to do some old-fashioned reporting on it and see if we could turn anything up could you just walk us through what happened in the case i know you know february 2017 is when it happened and it was a unsa- i guess a surprisingly warm day in delphi indiana and the kids were off from school it was a monday right it was a monday yeah they, they had accumulated um a number of uh, unused snow days that year. So they had that day off and Liberty German and Abigail Williams were two best friends. Um, Libby was 14. Abby was 13. They had a sleepover the night before, and then they were sort of hanging out on their day off. They end up going on a walk on the trails in Delphi, which leads to this like unused or, you know, at that point pretty badly in bad shape, uh, railroad bridge the monon high bridge and basically they go missing and they're found murdered the following day after you know a lot of search and a lot of media coverage at the in the beginning this was like these two kids are lost something you know maybe everybody get out there yeah let's all get out there and find it like you know the, the, the no one i don't think i mean at least our understanding from talking with locals is i don't think anyone expected this to be a homicide. And Delphi is a small town, right? Like so. Yeah, it's the a county, bunch of people were. Yeah. It's, it's small, and it's it's the county seat of the Carroll County. It's you know very agricultural in in the surrounding areas. You know, it, it used to be, um, I think, a little bit more thriving. There was some industry there, but that went away. You know, kind of along with a lot of America's industry around the same time, and. You know, it's but it's it's still there. It's it's a cute town. Um, it's a cute. I think it's actually it's technically a city, but they, you know, it, it's it's a very a lot of 
families are there forever. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of it, people know each other there for sure. One of the things that has always struck me about this case that sticks in my head is like how fickle like life can be because they simply because they had extra snow days. Those girls were out there. And it changed everything for them, their families. Like if it just snowed um, more that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wouldn't even know who these girls are, and they'd probably be living wonderful lives. I mean, how old would they be now? Oh, gosh. Like, I'm so bad at see, math. Let's- it's 2023, six years older. So, you know, they would have been in college. Yeah. Now, it's so, I mean, yeah. it it is so fickle, and it is so tragic because – not, I think it's not an overstatement to say that this case has changed so many lives for the worse. And um, this community, you can feel it. I mean, I, I feel it when I go there. I feel like this is a community that's been under siege for six years. It's not, it, it's, it's like they've had to basically be on alert and at any moment under the microscope under the too. microscope um you know the families have been under microscope it's it's been such an awful awful loss and then on top of that the reaction has been awful yeah and we think about like cases like this we think about the victims and their families but really there's so many victims they're their classmates their friends their barber you know, people who are accused because while we see certain names in the news, I'm sure tons more people have been on the radar screen that like, there's probably a collective community sense of loss. That's really deeper while it might be interesting or entertainment for some people. It's like so real and so deep for them. Yeah. And we, we always try to encourage our listeners, like let's all just put ourselves in that position. If that's our our, you know, kids, our town. Let's think about that. Um, because yeah, the it's just it's a it's a case that really kind of is just sprawling in, in many in many ways in terms of the actual investigation, in terms of the online impact, in terms of the level of tragedy. And, you know, there's just been it's just been one thing after another in that case. Oh, Kevin, on the, both of you, I wanted to ask you, how when you started covering it did you, you know, there were there were certain things about the case that were kind of rare, like after they found the girls, they found Libby's phone, which had a video and a, a, a picture of Abby on the bridge that's kind of become iconic, and a video of a man that later became known as Bridge Guy um, walking toward them. And she had sort of surreptitiously recorded um, him and... Uh, and so there were all these things that grabbed really national attention and to some extent international attention about the case. How did you want to differentiate your coverage? Was it did it tie back into the that piece that we were talking before about humanity? It did and also it was frankly a real challenge to try to what else hasn't been done or said about the case. There's so much information out there on social media about the case, for instance. So I think one thing we tried to do early on was, well, one thing we can do is we can take a lot of this information and see what of it we can confirm, what of it we can vet and put out good information 
We can offer analysis of the information, try to figure out what it means. And so for the early months of the investigation, or rather the early months of our coverage, that's what we focused on. And I think one turning point for us in terms of the humanity of some of these people involved was we got upset when another podcast did an episode in which they more or less, they walked right up to the the line of accusing a witness in the case of being involved in the crime itself. And we felt this witness didn't deserve that. And we were also worried this might discourage other witnesses and future crimes from coming forward. And so we wanted to report on that. And one thing that's interesting about that is that podcast was the True Crime Garage. And we reached oh. out to them. And the captain, one of the hosts from the show, is someone who really cares about the cases he covers. And he was willing to come on and have a very civil, respectful discussion with us. And even after we turned off the record button, we kept on talking with him. And we, we started from a point where he disagreed with us, we disagreed with him. But we found some humanity in each other, and we could respect each other as people, even if we quibbled about this particular episode. And we've become very friendly with both the hosts of True Crime Yeah, sense. The captain and Nick are some of my favorite people in true crime podcasting, and there's a couple of reasons for that. They they are so they are so genuine. Like when you listen to the show, I mean, they have a lot of good research. And again, we we disagreed with this one episode that they did, but I felt like. I felt like I got to, we've gotten to know them better and just very, very genuine human beings. The captain cares so deeply about Delphi. Like, I don't think that necessarily people realize that, but um, it is coming from a place of caring. And it was a great lesson for us because I think we approached it initially, like, basically kind of like, you know, like, you guys suck. Fight with us. You know? What's wrong with these people? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, but I think, like... But, and they were, know. like, they were actually, like, we'll engage with you on this. And, like, that was just a lesson. Anya, you may not have seen this side of Anya. Anya can write a very mean email. She- <laughs> I have <laughs> not. Captain, he sent the captain a very intimidating email. And he actually, his response was, here's my phone number. Give me a call. Let's we're talk about it. it. Yeah, let's talk about it. And so that's actually a really interesting point in this world of like social media and back and forth and snarky messages. Like sometimes a lot of our biggest gaps can just be solved by picking up the phone. Yeah. And, and in this case, the captain taught us that. I think the captain, because um, we were, you know, listen, like it's, we were on the kind of, you know, maybe, maybe if I still believe our, our point was or some of our, our our criticisms of the episode was perhaps correct, but I think we kind of approached it in more of a kind of like aggressive way than was necessary because it, it ended up being a really good conversation. And I think, you know, there was, um, you know, a friendship born out of that and we consider them friends now. And I just think we, you know, you can go into things and disagree and not necessarily have it be like a, you know, a hate fest or like a, you know, that means you're a horrible human being. And th- that was an important lesson for us. We have a lot of respect for them. Yeah, they're great. Uh, they're both very good at their jobs. The, uh, Nick is an excellent researcher. And both the True Crime Garage and Murder Sheet occupy kind, kind of a unique space. You know, we're from Indiana. They're from Ohio. Neither one of us is part of a big network. Neither one of us has a team of people doing our work for us. 
So we feel a certain amount of kinship with them at yeah, this point. They're really cool. And I'm really grateful for to the captain for responding to that email and engaging with us respectfully. Yeah, I looked at it afterwards. I'm like, I wouldn't have responded to this. Like, what's wrong with me? Like, <laughs> like calm down on you. <laughs> and that could have gone the abs- an absolutely different different path with which kind of is a decent segue for me to kind of some of what's happened in true crime and some of what's um you know, I had my career in the Times. It blew up. I got more media attention than I um, ever wanted. So one of the one of the kind of blessings of rebuilding my life quietly was to not have much media attention. So I say this by way of saying that I rarely stick my head up. There are a couple things I'll stick my head up for: to talk to journalism students, to do things that I think will help people. But I think part of what, at least in the, as a true crime consumer, has caused me to stick my head up on this particular case is that I see so many people talking about justice for Abby and Libby. But then when I see their behaviors, whether they're podcasters or YouTube creators, what I see is attention for me or sensationalist things that might hurt people. And I, it sounds like for you and Nick and the captain at True Crime Garage, that's clearly not where you're coming from. What's the, from your perspective, what's the, what's the solution to have, I think, more voices in this space that are like yours than some of the sensational ones? And I recognize, right, the sensational ones, they're perverse incentives to to be sensationalistic but at the end of the day if your sensationalism is hurting real people like the people in that community and the families and the injustice or the investigation like what what is our how do we find that balance oh gosh jason it is such a good question and I, i wish i knew the answer because as you said there are perverse incentives to sensationalism you know you know We often advocate for the boring answer, the boring approach, you know, and I think there there are obviously exceptions to that rule. But, you know, a lot of the sensationalism is is kind of precariously perched upon, you know, evidence that we've not seen, you know, evidence that's often bandied about or or kind of, you know, cited. But nobody really has a clear indication of, of what exactly it is once you ask some hard questions. and. That's for some people more interesting than or more in line with what their views of the world are than something that's more boring. I think people who are trying to, you know, navigate that space and are perhaps motivated by interest in the case, it can be really tempting to just kind of eat everything at the buffet. But perhaps if you're seeing people who are consistently exaggerating, lying, attacking others in a really in, in a way that seems you know, over the top, I think the best you could think you could do is kind of skip over that part of the buffet and then consume other more responsible dishes, I guess, would be my hackneyed and stupid metaphor. Um, (laughs) And and I mean, to steal, I think a point I heard Kevin make, and correct me if I'm wrong, Kevin, that you made this point, this is not new. You know, it goes back to yellow journalism. And probably, I think, Anya, you may have said back to the printing press that sensationalism has sold newspapers and it's done. But I think it's reach now and it's depth and it's impact on real people. 
like without going too far in it, you and I, the three of us have a mutual person that's our acquaintance. And, and, and for that person who got caught in the middle of many things in the Delphi case, we saw a serious impact on his mental health, serious impact on his family, his own actions, you know, created harm for other people. And I think he now sees this because he's a good person and wishes he could have had some of it back. But I think it's so easy to get caught up in sensationalist things that it leads to such poor decisions that that can hurt you and can hurt other other people. Which brings me to like actually a question that I've wanted to ask you guys for a long time. Like this has been a crazy winding case with all sorts of suspects and all sorts of sensationalism. But at its heart, like you guys do have this humanist uh, or hum- focus on humanity. Right. And, and that requires as a reporter to get to the truth and to truly understand humans, you have to get very deep in the, deep in the case and deep in, deep in places that people don't really like to think about or hard to handle. And I'm just, you know, as somebody who I look through my career and, you know, it is, I've realized over time, it is quite traumatic to cover cases like these, if you're truly going to cover it in a good way and truly get to know the people who are going through this pain or who are struggling with these things, I'm wondering what the emotional experience for you two has been like. Um, I think for me, it can, it can be pretty painful at times um, because it's just, it's not like other cases we've covered before. There was, you know, there was stuff in, in the Burger Chef case where you're like, you, you can be frustrated, but it didn't seem as all-encompassing as Delphi is for some people. And to see how it affects people and how it has affected people and just dealing with the fact that you do have a kind of a, a subgroup of people who use it as an excuse to behave in really vile ways on the internet, whether they're just kind of random commentators or researchers or even creators is difficult to deal with because you, you just think like, this is, it's already enough of a tragedy. We don't need to make it worse with, with our behavior as adults over the case of two little girls. I think they deserve better. I think their families deserve better. I think, um, I, I, it, so it makes me angry at times. It makes me depressed at times. Um, we've tried to get away from it at times. Um, just, you know, for us. And it's, it's not just Delphi. Some of the other cases that we've covered have gone to us emotionally. I remember recently we interviewed the parents of a, a young man who went missing while uh, camping. And I remember listening to this man's parents and how profoundly they had been affected by his loss and how they were now trying to help others so others wouldn't have to go through this. And just something about how movingly they spoke about this all and something about how great the people they were. I think at different times in that interview, both Ani and I broke down. And on some level, that's embarrassing because it doesn't seem professional. But on another level, it's just part of being human. So human. So human. I am. I always wonder, someone has to, someone has to cover these stories for us. Someone has to keep people accountable. Someone has to be out there looking for the truth. 
do you guys have any thoughts for people who are doing work like you're doing about how to take care of their emotional and mental health? I mean, one thing I think is embedded in what you guys said, allow yourself to feel. But what what thoughts do you have on that? Such a good question. I, I wish we had some good advice because sometimes it feels like we're learning about it as we go along. You know, we joked that one time we, we you know, we took a, our most recent break from Delphi led to us both getting um, COVID when we went on like a little weekend trip. So like sometimes it's easy to say, take a break, but that's not always going to, sometimes that'll just make things way worse. Um, <laughs> I, I would say that uh, definitely allowing yourself to feel super important. Try to take care of yourself, whatever that means for you individually, because um, it doesn't, it doesn't benefit you or the case or anything for you to kind of um, run yourself into the ground. You know, it, it's important to kind of whatever, whatever you do to take care of yourself, whatever you do to take care of your mental well-being, whatever that routine looks like, try to stick with that. And um, one thing I found helpful is to, we try to set boundaries. We try to say, you know, we're going to stop working at a cer- after a certain time, or if we're really stressed, maybe we give ourselves a, a day off to kind of go look at some trees or something uh, <laughs> like that can be, it, it sounds kind of banal and it is, but it, it does help. I think, what do you think, Kevin? Uh, I, I think one thing that's been helpful to us is having a partner because I think so often there, there've been times where maybe like I might get upset or angry about something and Anya pulls me back or, vice versa. And also there's someone there who immediately understands what you're going through and can help you. And so I I feel that's been invaluable for us. Yeah. Oh, no. I, I also was, you know, kind of along those lines, the point about finding a partner. I, you know, part of, I, I found Brett Talley and Alice Sikor of the prosecutors through, through you guys, through a accident. And, you know, they've become my friends and I know that they have you guys often. It, it just makes me wonder, have you found a community of like-minded people? And is that who are also in your space? And is that also helpful? Uh, that's something we're working on developing. Uh, yeah. Early on in the Delphi space, uh, it was very negative towards us. And I'm not exactly sure why, but that, that was a challenge for us emotionally and so that made us kind of step back from social media and lately we've been trying to remedy that we've become good friends with the host of two crime garage become good friends with you we love brett and alice yeah they're amazing amazing people so we're going to try to get more involved with our our peers yeah i think i think there's people doing good work in the space i think for us sometimes you know in the beginning because of experiences we had we would just kind of inclined to a kind of um become more hermit like um because we just didn't want to deal with it you know unfortunately like podcasting and i'm sure jason you've encountered this there can be there can be people who kind of see a lot of things as like transactional um Mm -hmm. or you know i mean we had this experience you come on my show i come on yours i share this information with you i share right and like that's understandable but i think when it comes to like 
there can be a keen sense of rejection where it's like suddenly, you know, one day you're saying, you know, we're the best things since sliced bread. And the next day you're, you know, attacking us on social media because one of your friends, you know, said you should. Did that actually happen? Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Oh, they, more than once. More than once. Um, oh, wow. Actually quite a lot. Uh, it's in- That made us suspicious. Yeah, that made us. Yeah. We just kind of were like, eh, well, let's step back. Let's step back. We don't need any of this uh, high school stuff. And I mean, I'll tell you, this is kind of, this is uh, less of a big deal because, I mean, the thing about Delphi is it has a lot of fringe creators who are very small. Like, they're not they're not big. They're not big household names. But they, for a certain kind of minority of people who care about the case, they are somewhat influential because they have the, the kind of the obsessives in, in a kind of um, as an audience. But And they come out like swarms. They do. <laughs> they do come out like swarms. But they're funny because we felt like – we we went through this situation recently where there was a leak of crime scene photos and we, we kind of talked about it afterwards. I mean, we, uh, we ended up cutting ties with so many people over this. It was like, it was like an mm. acid test of, of like, I felt character to a certain extent. And a lot of people just di- went off the deep end with this thing. So mm. it was kind of like, it was upsetting on some level because you think you kind of have formed a human connection with somebody, but then, once you see like the behavior is just not changing or is just worsening, it was clarifying. Because- well, I had, I mean, for me, a very similar experience with somebody over that exact same leak in the sense that, and I get how people have this initial reaction. Oh, I got this cool piece of information. Let me put it out there. Mm-hmm. And I point out to the person that picture you're putting out there and we're trying to figure out whether that's an F on the tree, that's a little girl's blood. Mm-hmm. And for me, our interaction over that showed me that we don't share the same values. And that is what it goes back to. It's not about agreeing about everything or... It also broke my heart. Yeah. it's <laughs> A lot of what's happened over the last six months has been heartbreaking for me on a personal level. Is There was a number of people that I thought... I thought were different and I thought uh, I had a good personal relationship with, and I thought they liked me. I like them. And it was just, it's been a difficult process because it's like, you know, ultimately, you know, <laughs> I think what, what's the tell on some of this is the defensiveness because mm-hmm. if you, if you're feeling good about what you're doing and somebody says to you, Hey, this is concerning to me or, or I have, I have some qualms about this. But we all need people to do that for us. Like, if you guys called me one day and said, hey, Jason, we just listened to your episode. We're a little concerned about what you're doing. I would be like, thank you. Right? Let me go check that out. Right. And and vice versa. If you were like, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this was a cool approach for, for the way you handled this. I mean, we'd want to hear you out and say, okay, maybe, you know, let, let's come to some understanding or let's let's figure out how we can do better next time. The personal impact of of some of this is kind of, it it can be heavy, but it's also a matter of, you know, if someone truly does not share your values and is in fact, you know, becomes a a kind of verbally abusive, if you kind of raise stuff with them, then I think that's an indicator that that's not a relationship that necessarily needs to be pursued anymore. And so this has been, this has been clarifying. There's also been other people who like, you know, they, they didn't like what we you know, did or one way or another, but instead of kind of confronting us on it, which we would respect, they went about like talking about us behind our backs or stuff. So you like, you learn about people when there's kind of a crisis point like this and you, 
you reassess relationships, which is painful, but sometimes necessary. So one of the thing I'm things I'm learning here is that Brett, Alice, and I need to plan a road trip to Indiana, pick up the True Crime Garage people on the way, <laughs> and we need to break bread together and spend some time together and uh, and hang out. And then the other thing really is like the value of genuine friendship and the difference between, you know, people who truly care about you as people. I imagine you and I, or the three of us, will be friends long beyond the point any of us are covering or doing anything about the Delphi case. And there's something about that genuine connection, the value. You know, I've talked on my podcast about how supportive you guys have been as my when in my mother's loss and just the comfort that comes from that. I, I think it like the fact that you guys are people like that who are genuine, it makes sense to me why the human aspect of Delphi would be most I think most appealing to you. And I just, I, I wonder for you, like when you're looking at this and you're in this pursuit of truth and there are all these people who are out there just thinking of the listeners, right. Who are doing the sensationalist entertaining stuff. If you were to make the pitch to people about what the value of fact-based reporting of pursuing the truth is for for justice, for the victims' families, for the town, for people like that, what would it, what would it be? What's the value you would you put on it? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I, I would just say, like, you know, a lot of a lot of the sensational stuff is is kind of branding itself in a similar way, which is, you know, this is the real truth. You know, this is the unadulterated truth, and a lot of it's very performative, in my view. Um, it's very gilded and surface level. And I think ultimately people want something more than that. I think they want the truth, you know, not people peacocking around and, you know, posing as, as truth tellers. And I think people are smart enough to see the difference and to, to crave one and not the other. And that over the long term, the bright, shiny toy is always going to become the dull toy. Mm-hmm. The truth is going to guide us. Exactly. It, it becomes, you know, do you want a flashlight or do you want like a, you know, like crazy light that's blasting and turning off one minute? And not, you, you want consistency and you want um, people who have demonstrated their commitment to ethics in their actions, who are not just necessarily ethics washing and talking about how like, you know, you can you can consume this podcast. It's organic. You know, you want the people who have been living by that and not just exactly. labeling it. Probably mm-hmm. there's such an appetite out there for anything at all. It's like Anya's always after me because I eat a lot of bad food. Yes. And so I understand the temptation to eat bad food. And so I guess maybe we're saying eat your vegetables. Yeah. We're, 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 we're consider perhaps, you know, you can enjoy – you can enjoy different things, but consider the nutritional content at some point. And I think sometimes these things go beyond just like maybe they're nutritionally empty, but to be like they're like actively dangerous. Dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's yeah. where we are with some of this. And well, you know, yeah, and you can do both. Like I tell people, if you want to be entertained by something, be entertained. Also, know that that's not necessarily the truth, and you know, seek different sources. But yeah, to your point, some of it can be 
downright dangerous. What do you think the impact for like the victims' families, the town, and people like of the sensationalism is? I think it's incredibly detrimental to all of them. I mean, you have people who essentially, you know, come into this, and I, I think there's been a lot of hatred towards Carroll County um, as a whole. The victims' families, people connected to the case in one way or another. And it's based on assumptions like, oh, I, I, you know, it's a small town, so everyone's corrupt. Okay, well, what's your evidence for that? Well, it just seems like that would be true. Okay, well, that's not really quite good enough, you know, or, oh, the, you know, I think some people are really uncomfortable with um, lack of lack of answers. So I think over time, that worsened the situation because it was like, if you know, if, if it gets solved immediately, then we can all grieve with the families and, and be sympathetic towards them. But if it's unsolved, we need someone to blame. And that could be the families. They must be hiding something or law enforcement. They're covering it up. Or um, this random guy whose Facebook photo reminds me of Bridge Guy who lives in the town. It, there's like a mob mentality of like, we need someone to blame. I have all this anger in me and I, it's, you know, I'm angry. Right. I need to blast it at somebody. And I think people need to be recognizing that it's okay to be angry about what happened to Libby and Abby. That's a totally normal feeling to have, but that it's not appropriate to blast it at somebody in in this situation over just because nature's abhorring a vacuum. Right. And I, I think nature abhors a vacuum is kind of like the underlying cause of a lot of this online bad behavior because you had reporters weren't getting anywhere on it for a number of years and then you know the the online people filled in the vacuum and some of it was fine some of it i think there's a i think there's a level of speculation that that is fine in an unsolved case because that that leads to discussions is this a serial killer uh, was it his first time like i think that's fine but you know like Oh, are Libby's grandparents covering it up because, uh, you know, one of them looked uncomfortable in an interview? I think that gets to the point where it is it's harmful to real people. And think about think about I mean, these people don't seem to have the empathy to consider what if someone was saying that about me and my, you know, child or grandchild or loved one had just been murdered. You know, no, like these people don't seem to make that connection. It's just, you know, it's just a game. Yeah. Kevin? Yeah, I think one way a lot of people can get attention quickly is by saying or doing something shocking. And it can be shocking to say something like, oh, the parents must have been involved or the sister must have been involved. And there's just, they don't consider, as Anya very eloquently said, how that affects people, the people involved. And this is not a game. This is uh, real life with real people. And that's easy to forget. I know uh, just I think last weekend, Ani and I went to the uh, Ernie Pyle Museum here in Indiana, and there's a point to this story. <laughs> <laughs> Ernie Pyle is a World War II correspondent, and back in 1945, he wrote, or maybe it was 1944, he wrote an incredible column about a soldier who died in combat named C- Captain Waskow. And anybody who reads this, I challenge them to get through it and not have to wipe away a tear and i remember reading this as a uh, as a young man and thinking this is like really great writing and i was earlier at the ernie pyle museum for the 50th anniversary of the end of the war 
And someone who had served with Captain Waskow was there and stood up and, and spoke. And he was just devastated talking about the loss of his friend. And that really underscored to me how the people we read about are real and people care about them. It's not just fancy writing. It's not just people being emotional on YouTube or whatever. These are real people. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, going back to all the points we were talking about, like the world kind of flattens people for us. Like we try to tell ourselves how something isn't going to happen to us or our loved ones, or it's not going to happen in our town. And we turn places where bad things happen into freak shows and, you know, carnival situations. And we just take the humanity. But the thing that you guys, I think both alluded to, that's really brilliant. Like maybe before we speak, maybe a big lesson here is maybe before we speak, maybe before we post, just put yourself in the shoes of all the many people that might be affected by those words or their impact. So I want to give you guys both a chance for any closing thoughts. If you want to share um, anything you want to say before we wrap up. I think I've been thinking about this and, and this conversation has like prompted so many thoughts for me, like on this topic. So I just want to say, I so appreciate your wonderful questions and just the empathy that you bring to this work, Jason. Something we were talking about, I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with the nature of of tragedy, of just an awful tragedy happening, especially when, as in the case of a homicide, someone is responsible. There's there's someone who did this. It's not a it's not a natural disaster. And I think people feeling, I think, you know, want, having the tragedy affect them and prompting either sorrow or anger. That's that's normal. We're we're humans. That's that's how we feel over things like this. But I think if we can collectively try to channel that into something more helpful, like curiosity, wanting to learn more, but not necessarily crossing boundaries or smearing people unnecessarily, because I, I really do think there's something to the fact that this went unsolved for so long. People have been looking for scapegoats, and they found many different scapegoats. And even now that someone has been arrested and charged with a crime, there's continuing to be this effort to to scapegoat. And I think that is deeply unhelpful and says more about the people doing it than any reality to the situation. And I think people just need to try to, you know, come to terms with the reality versus necessarily what sounds good on the internet. And I'm going to go to a bit of a lighter place. We talked about protecting your mental health and trying to find ways to relax. One way you can do that is just by watching silly nonsense. Uh, I know Brett, <laughs> Brett and Alice, or at least Brett, talks a lot about Hallmark movies. I know Anya is a big fan of those. Love them. And I, I'm going to shoehorn this in here. Anya and I have lately been watching a, a bizarre Austrian TV show called Inspector Rex which is about a crime-solving dog. And <laughs> if you watch the opening credits or if I even tell you about the show, it, it looks and feels like it's a kid show, but it's not. It has these bizarre tonal shifts where the dog is doing something cute, like going to the store for its owner. 
And then like two seconds later, there's a horrible, horrible crime, which they show you in graphic detail. <laughs> it's insane. It's like Columbo, Columbo right? Columbo the dog? It's, right. kind of, it's kind of Columbo the dog. It's kind of Law and Order with a dog. It's, it, it, <laughs> ding, ding. Yeah, right. ding, it, it, it's, it's really uh, the weirdest thing we've ever seen. If you look, and people have commented on this, but if you look at the intro, it looks like one of those fake shows that's like playing in the background of a sitcom, like making fun of police <laughs> procedurals, but it's actually very relaxing. So that's kind of where we are. We, we are so burned out that we cannot watch actual police procedurals. We need an Austrian show about a German shepherd named Rex who uh, solves crimes. With his and it's owner. like, it's not for kids. It's not for kids. We don't watch this with your children. There's really horrible crimes. You will scar your kids for life. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, this has been so much fun. Like, these are so many things that I care about, like, um, you know, bringing humanity, bringing compassion to the work that we do. Like, I love the fact that you guys have built this platform. And instead of sort of like falling into sensationalism or selfishness or or expediency, you're continuing to do work that's, you know, not only focused on the truth, but it's ethical and it's also compassionate. And I hope that other people can see what you're doing. Maybe everybody in the world won't like it. And realize, like, there's a way to do this that can be impactful, that can be compassionate, and can lead to um, good outcomes. So I just wanted to thank you for, for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having us, Jason. It's just been a delight to get to know you and become friends. And we just, we love the work you're doing and just want to support it in any way possible. So just, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it, guys. Before we wrap for the week... I want to invite you all to join us at our listeners meetup at the Omni Hotel at the Battery Atlanta beside Truist Park on Saturday, December 2nd at noon. You can find out more about it on our Facebook group, the Silver Linings Fireside Chat, which I'd also encourage you to join. It's a great listener-run community where we share ideas, have interesting discussions, explore interesting topics, and it's where you can find a lot of comfort and a lot of support. This is Jason Blair, and this is the Silver Linings Handbook. We'll see you all again next week. <music>